Bibles this morning. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke. Most of you already know that, but perhaps you're visiting or you're new. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 22. Our text is Luke 22, verses 63, all the way into chapter 23, verse 25. Uh, don't sigh or anything. I'll get you out on time. Our topic is Jesus on trial, and our title is Religion-Assisted Deicide, which you'll get about halfway through the message, so just meditate on that. Let's read the text beginning in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who struck you? In many other things, they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod with his men uh, of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with each other. And then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast." And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. 
And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's pray together. Lord, we have a great and sincere desire that you would take these words and cause them to stir up our hearts, bring to life a picture of Jesus Christ in and through them. Help us to see your son in a new, fresh light. We want to be thrilled having been in your presence. Scripture says that you spoke as no man ever spoke before. And though you're not here, Lord, and I can't speak that way, your Holy Spirit can. He can take the sounds and thrill them to our hearts. And we pray for that. And Lord, I bet that there's some unbelievers here this morning. One or many who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They may not know very much about Jesus at all, other than that he's a historical figure. I pray that today that they would understand that he is far more than that. He is everything that the Jews accused him of, God and man. And he came to die for their sins. He rose from the dead that he might offer them eternal life. And so I pray, Lord, that those issues would be resolved here this morning in the hearts of anyone teetering on the brink of eternity. We ask these things, Lord, believing and knowing you can accomplish them by your presence and power among us. We trust in you and not in ourselves. Will we do so in Jesus' name? And everyone said, Amen. Who killed Jesus? The question was on a 2004 cover of Newsweek. The motion picture, The Passion of the Christ, had reignited an ugly historical debate. Was it the Jews who killed Jesus or was it the Romans? I know who it was. It was Rembrandt. In his painting, The Raising of the Cross, as Jesus hangs on the cross while it is being lifted into place, the soldier pulling it up is Rembrandt himself. He put himself at the cross as the one who killed the Lord. Rembrandt killed Jesus, and I did, and you did. We are the ones for whom Jesus went to the cross. The Jews and the Romans were merely instruments carrying out a plan of salvation that had been determined and decided before the world was ever created. God the Father sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross so that the sins of mankind could be forgiven. God the Son voluntarily gave His life to offer mankind forgiveness and salvation. Now, there are Jews and Romans in our verses, but they are not the main character. They are only the background. Your eye should be fixed upon Jesus. Have you ever looked into one of those 3D pictures? They were real popular a few years ago. People would say, hey, stare into this. And you'd stand there in the hallway of their house staring into this picture. And if you stared long enough and let your eyes just kind of relax, all of a sudden this image would jump out at you, this three-dimensional image. And you whoa, look at that. And a lot of them were of Jesus, by the way. It was kind of cool. Actually, they were kind of weird, but it was a cool phenomenon. But that's what I want to, to say about our text this morning. It's something that we need to stare at until this image comes into focus. Because all this talk about who killed Jesus, was it the Jews, was it the Romans? It's really out of focus. They're not the ones that we should be looking at. We should be looking at the Lord. 
In this text, here is what you should see. Staring at Jesus among the Jews in chapter 22, you'll see him come into focus as God to be your sacrifice. And then staring at Jesus among the Romans in chapter 23, you'll see him come into focus as man to be your substitute. We'll organize our thoughts around those two thoughts. Number one, Jesus had to be God to be your sacrifice. And number two, Jesus had to be man to be your substitute. First of all, in the end of chapter 22, Jesus had to be God to be your sacrifice. Jesus endured, it seems, a total of six illegal trials on the evening and morning before his crucifixion. The first three were religious He was examined by Annas and then Caiaphas and then the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. And the next three trials were civil as Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, then Herod Antipas, and then again a second time to Pontius Pilate. In between these trials, Jesus endured cruel mockings and severe beatings. Now, I just want to explain something to you this morning. I don't get into a lot of detail about the beatings themselves, the crucifixion itself. It's become popular over the last few years, especially to really get into kind of bloody, gory detail. There's a there's a thought that we really need to hear or see how awful the physical beatings were in order to really make a connection with Jesus. The problem I have with that is that the gospel writers themselves are very reverent, very reserved in their discussion of the crucifixion. They don't go into any of the medical aspects of it. They don't talk about how terrible it was. I mean, you can imply for yourself what's going on. It doesn't need to be completely drawn out for you. And the truth is, uh, some of the things about what actually happened to Jesus... We don't have the complete facts. When we get to Easter, I'll explain to you that Jesus didn't really walk along carrying a cross like we've seen in depicted many times, the the entire cross with the cross beam and all. A, A relatively healthy man who hadn't been beaten or tried, hadn't been up all night, wasn't bleeding, you know, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. That kind of a person can't even do that. They've done reenactments where they've built these crosses and you can't carry it more than about 15 feet. It's that heavy. And so a lot of our ideas, the pictures that we paint about the actual suffering of Jesus, they're just wrong anyway. But the, the, the real key here, God wants to see behind the story. Yes, these sufferings are real and they are severe. They should bring a tear to your eye without having to describe them in real detail. Uh, And the fact that we've become, uh, some people say, a visually oriented culture and we need to see these things, that's just bogus. And so I'm not going to go into a lot of that detail as we look upon one of these beatings and pick up the story in verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. The irony of this behavior is that while they were mocking Jesus' ability to prophesy, they were themselves fulfilling Bible prophecy. Psalm 90, excuse me, Psalm 69 and Isaiah chapter 50 both predicted these beatings that would take place. And so it's it's cruelly ironic that these ignorant soldiers that are saying prophesy if you're the son of God. Uh, are actually fulfilling prophecy. Now, you know, people still scoff at Bible prophecy. 
it is typical of unbelievers. Peter talks about it in his second epistle. He says the scoffers come and say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's going on just as it has. What's interesting to me is that those guys are fulfilling Bible prophecy because Peter said that they would do that. And prophecy is being fulfilled all around us all the time. All you should have to say to a person who doesn't believe in Bible prophecy is one word, Israel. The, the, the fact that there is a nation of Israel in their ancient promised land is a tremendous fulfillment of centuries-old Bible prophecies found all over the Old Testament. It's so phenomenal, many Christians up until the 20th century didn't even believe that Israel would be a nation again. They had decided that there was no place for Israel or the Jews in God's kingdom and that we had taken their place as the church. And then all of a sudden, May 14 of 1948, Israel is back in their land. There hasn't been a a day probably in my entire life that Israel wasn't prominent in the news. And yet people go around saying that God isn't fulfilling Bible prophecy, that none of these things are coming true. Ignorant men, ironic in that terrible sense verse 66 as soon as it was day the elders of the people both chief priests and scribes came together and they led jesus into their council saying if you are the christ tell us christ means anointed one it's another term for the messiah it's what the jews called their messiah claiming to be the christ the messiah was not blasphemy The Jews were expecting the Messiah to come. And so Jesus answered in verse 67. He says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Jesus had already fully proven himself their promised Messiah because he had done all of the works that were prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. At one point, when they were talking to Jesus earlier in his ministry, he said, look at the works themselves. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He opened uh, the mouths of the mute. He cast out demons. All of the symbols and signs and credentials, really, of the Messiah had been done by Jesus, and they still didn't believe. Any dialogue he might have with them now was pointless. They had already made up their minds. Of course he was the Christ, but he was someone more, and he was about to tell them that. Verse 69, hereafter the Son of Man, referring to himself, will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, this doesn't mean as much to us as it would to a Jewish audience. Son of Man was another title for the Messiah or the Christ, but this idea of sitting on the right hand of the power of God This put Jesus on a par that was equal with God. They understood this. If you, in a Jewish context like this, said, I'm going to sit on the right hand of the power of God, you are making yourself equal with God. And that's why they say in verse 70, are you then the son of God? Now, notice they don't ask him, what do you mean you're the son of man? They understood that he was saying he was the son of God. And that's why they say, are you the son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, hey, that's it. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What have they heard? What they considered blasphemy. Son of God was and is a divine title. 
It was and is a claim to be equal with God. They thought Jesus was a man claiming to be equal with God. And guess what? They were right. But for them, this was blasphemy. By the way, a lot of the cult groups, well, all of the cults diminish Jesus Christ. They in some way take away from his uh, deity. They say that Jesus isn't really fully God. He was a created being. He was an angel. He was something less than God. And they sometimes say, you know, nowhere does the Bible really say that Jesus was God. Well, of course it does. But a a strong argument for the fact that he was, was that the Jews always understood that that's exactly what he was doing. He said, hey, I'm the son of man. I'm going to sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they said, so you're the son of God? He said, yeah. And they said, hey, that's blasphemy. You're a man making yourself equal with God. And so don't get fooled by these people who tell you that Jesus is not God. It's important that he is. By the way, let me a little time out disclaimer this morning. It gets tricky sometimes because you're talking about the dual nature of Christ and even theologians stumble here. I want, I want to say this one time so that you don't misunderstand me. Jesus Christ was fully God and Jesus Christ was fully man at the same time in a union unique to him that can't ever be repeated, won't ever be repeated, and is really kind of impossible to fully comprehend. But it's important. I mean, this is what the Bible teaches. Jesus, fully God, fully man at the same time. While he was on the earth as a man, he temporarily suspended the independent use of his deity. He said, I'm God, but I'm going to only do what my Father in heaven tells me to do. There are some people who believe that Jesus was God, became a man, was no longer God, and then became God again. That's just wrong. That's just a heresy. That's not true. Jesus, fully God, fully man. So if I say something that seems a little bit confusing, it's because it's just sometimes hard to talk about because you're dealing with the unique nature of the Son of God. Theologians have a big word for it. I think it's called the... uh, the kenosis. Huh? I'm no dummy. I know what's going on. I mean, I can hang with the best of them. You know, I can go to lunch with theologians and when they say, hey, what do you think about the kenosis? You know, I know they're not talking about a Greek soccer team. But uh, anyway. All right. Verse one. Then the whole multitude of them arose and they led him to Pilate. Let's stop right there, step back, and stare into the text to see Jesus come into focus. He had just told them that their Messiah, the Son of Man, was also God. They responded by delivering him to be killed. But not just killed. Among them were priests. When a priest leads a perfect victim to be killed, the proper word is what? Sacrifice. Jesus comes into focus all of a sudden As your sacrifice. Sin requires there be an appropriate sacrifice. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God came and he covered their sin with coats of skin. Where did he get them? He killed an animal or two, probably lambs, and established that a sacrifice was necessary in order to cover sin. He also promised our first parents right there in the garden that he would come into our world and offer himself as a once for all sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice of animals could not fully finally cover our sin. Only a perfect sinless sacrifice could do that. And since the human race was spoiled with sin, 
Only God himself could ever qualify to be the full and final sacrifice for sin. Now, don't forget also that it was Passover when Jesus was being examined by these Jewish authorities. All over Jerusalem, Passover lambs were also being examined for the annual sacrifice. They must be as perfect as possible without blemishes or spots or defects of any kind. Jesus' three religious trials were symbolic of those kinds of examinations. He was found to be perfect without blemishes or spots or defects of any kind. The only thing they could accuse him of was that he was claiming to be God. And it's a good thing he was. If Jesus is not God, then your sins cannot be fully and finally covered. They cannot be forgiven and you cannot be saved. No angel can be your sacrifice. No created being can be your sacrifice. No perfect person, even if there was such a thing, can be your sacrifice. Only the Christ, Son of Man who was and is God, can die for your sin. Jesus was God, your sacrifice, and He was man, your substitute. In chapter 23, verses 1 through 25, Jesus had to be man to be your substitute. It's no good Him dying unless he does so instead of you as a substitute. In order to be a valid substitute, he must also be a real flesh and blood human being. The three civil trials of Jesus bring him into focus as a man. Three times at least in this account, Luke stressed Pilate's description of Jesus. He'd look at him and say, look at this man. And it brings out to us this theme that Jesus now is being presented as a man. And so in verse 1, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They had found Jesus guilty of claiming to be God, but that would not matter to Roman civil authority. So they invented a series of false charges against Jesus. You see, the Jews didn't have the power to condemn a man to death or to put a man to death. And so they needed Roman help. Jesus is still falsely accused of many things today. Unbelievers typically want whatever blessings might come from God, but they typically accuse him for any calamities that might befall them or others. Anything goes wrong, either personally or publicly. Where is God when it hurts? How could a God of love allow this? And it's a it's a philosophical question, a personal question that has been asked and asked and asked. And the answer, where is God when all these terrible things, these terrible things are happening, is he's in the same place he was when he was watching his son be crucified. He was dealing with the issue of sin so that men might be saved. You see, we're always looking elsewhere to blame someone else. Adam tried to shift the blame to Eve. Eve tried to shift the blame to the devil. The devil didn't have anybody to shift the blame to. But they were all at fault. And, and, and you know, the the whole question of, of why do bad things happen or where is God or how can there be a God, it's a blame-shifting question. It's basically saying everything should be good because I'm good. And it's not, so it's God's fault. And, And the reality is you're a sinner. Where is God? He's dying on the cross, rising from the dead so that you can be saved. 
He's waiting for you to get saved. You might be the last person to get saved before he finally deals with the sin of the world. And so it's not, God's not to blame. Mankind is to blame. Our parents in the Garden of Eden are to blame. Sin has been passed on through the race, like other characteristics. You may not like that, but there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the nature of things. And so God's done everything he can do beyond what we would imagine in our own minds God would do. And so the answer is sin. Verse 3, then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Pilate declared Jesus an innocent man. The Jews were understandably unsatisfied. This was a lobbying group exerting whatever political pressure necessary to see Jesus executed. When Pilate heard of Galilee, verse 6, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover. This was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. He attended Passover for political reasons. It was a gesture, not genuine. Herod had a superstitious interest in Jesus. He treated Jesus the way we treat mediums and psychics today. He saw some entertainment value in it. You know, we watch television. Daytime television is full of this kind of you know, thing where... People come on Oprah or Dr. Phil or whatever, and they're psychics and they're mediums. They're talking to the dead and doing all of this kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, there's magicians and magic shows and all these different... It's, it's like we have a curiosity about the, the supernatural and all of that. And, uh, I, you know, the, the, the supernatural is real. There is a, a, a realm all around us that we don't understand, an unseen realm of angels and demons. And I think the, the curiosity with uh, what are essentially occultic practices is something that is going to tie into the lie of the end times when the church is raptured, but that's for another time. And so Herod had this kind of a fascination with these things, and, and it's not unlike our own society today. Fascinated by them, but not really wanting to do anything about it. I mean, everybody wants to go see movies like The Exorcist and Exorcist 2 and The Exorcism of this gal, Emily Rose, I think it was. I didn't see it, by the way. But uh, So if you're thinking, man, I saw that and I wish I hadn't and I can't believe Pastor Gene went to see it. Haven't seen it. But uh, anyway, you know, everybody, but, you know, I remember seeing The Exorcist when I was a teenager. Definitely wasn't a date movie. <laughs> it was not a good drive-in date movie, I'll tell you that. I thought I was going to get hammered on my way home. I mean, just it was a windy, cold night in San Bernardino and, and there was a long walkway to my home. You know, I always hate those houses that have those like remote walkways, you know, where axe murderers can hang out in the bushes. And we had a house like that and bushes and stuff. And I was scared. I thought the devil is going to come and possess me at any moment. And I'll know it's him when my head spins around and I vomit. And uh, so, but, you know, I didn't do anything about it. I just you know, slept all the way under the covers or whatever you do. And you think the boogeyman is in the closet, you know? And so people have a fascination with these things, but they don't lead them to any repentance. And so Herod is just hanging out here, trying to get some cheap parlor trick out of Jesus. 
What a terrible scene. Now, Jesus' silence is one of the most terrifying displays of his power, I think, in all the Scripture. Can you imagine having the Son of God in front of you and him not say anything? Wow. Jesus had said everything that he was going to say to Herod through John the Baptist. John the Baptist had rebuked Herod. He had told him the truth. Finally, when he accused him of adultery, which he was committing... He had John thrown into prison. He ended up having him beheaded because of his own foolish pride. And Jesus said, hey, that's the te- you've got a testimony right there. I don't need to say anything to you. You know, sometimes in the lives of people that we love, it doesn't seem like God is really doing anything. But you can trust that he has brought them a testimony and they need to just return to it, think about it, deal with it. And so verse 10, And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently or vehemently, accused him. Or is it vehemently? I don't know. That's one of those words you don't really use very much, but it sounds good. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. They had a kind of camaraderie. Man, it's tough being a leader over these people. Yeah, tell me about it. You know, people who are in, you know, stressful jobs, they, they gather together and they tell war stories and stuff. And this is, you know, just kind of a weird comment, except that it's interesting. People do like to join together in their hatred of Christianity and their hatred of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it really like anybody who's out there uh, who's normally an enemy of each other will join together to hate biblical Christianity. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. Now, during all this politicking, Jesus was again mocked. Luke mentioned especially this gorgeous robe they put on him. Again, there is some irony. They intended it to show that Jesus was powerless to be anyone's king, when in reality, he possessed all power and will return in power to rule over the entire earth. And not just that, the robe that they placed upon him would have undoubtedly gotten stained by some of his blood from his previous beatings and from the beating that they gave him. It's interesting because the scripture in Revelation says when Jesus returns, he's wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. But it's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. And so there's a a fascinating turn here, uh, a fascinating illustration of what's really going on behind the scenes. Verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, he said to them, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Jesus is a second time declared innocent. Pilate agrees to have Jesus beaten as a warning. He hoped to appease the crowd and then release Jesus, a custom Rome had adopted to show some consideration to the Jews at Passover. No one is sure where this custom actually came from. It is interesting that Passover was the feast that commemorated the release of the Jews from their slavery in Egypt. At that time in Egypt, each household was to kill a lamb and then apply its blood to their doorpost. 
the death of the lamb enabled them to be set free because the death angel that God sent passed over those houses, didn't kill the firstborn. Pharaoh relented, let the Jews go. The death of the lamb enabled them to be set free. Just so the death of Jesus would allow Barabbas to be set free, but not just Barabbas, all who call upon him would be saved because he is more than just a lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 18, and they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will, therefore, chastise him and let him go. For the third time, Pilate declared Jesus totally innocent of any charges. Keep this in mind when you're watching those ridiculous specials around Easter and Christmas on the History Channel. They all have these academic experts who try to figure out what Jesus really, why he really died. And usually they come to the conclusion that he was some kind of social, political, revolutionary figure and, and that the government had to put down his rebellion. Now, I'm not telling you not to watch those things. You know, a lot of times Christians get accused of checking their brain at the door. Uh, it's like, oh, don't look at the facts because it'll interfere with your faith. No, no, I want you to look at the facts. We are not afraid of the facts. The facts always line up with what God has said. It's these intellectuals who are afraid of the facts, whether it's creation or whether it's the nature of Jesus. They won't deal with the real facts. Here's what you need to know, though, when you're watching those shows. These guys start from a position that the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is not the Word of God to them. It's not inspired by God. It's just a collection of stories, many of them uh, inflated to be a mythology by a bunch of people who wanted to make Jesus, this historical man, their hero and follow him. Now, if you start from that as your premise, man, you're going to be, you're going to come up with all kinds of weird ideas. And the truth is, some of the ideas they come up with are harder to believe than the Bible itself. But they have rejected those, and, and so they, they come up with these weird ideas that end up in the book, The Da Vinci Code, and get people all stressed out. Oh, maybe Da Vinci was right. Da Vinci was an idiot when it came to religious things. Smart guy, idiot when it came to the Lord. And, and so don't, you know, check it out. Look at these things. Figure it out. It, it, we're not afraid of that. I know I'm way off subject now, but this whole creation evolution debate, bring on the facts. Bring out the fossils. Let's talk about them. It's, the, it's, it's evolution that has no basis in scientific fact whatsoever. They have never found, nor will they ever find, a transitional species. I mean, you can say all you want that a fish flopped out of the water and grew wings and started to fly because it couldn't breathe. But it, there's no evidence of that anywhere. There's no transitional species. And so, you know, we're able to say, well, you know, it looks like there was a global flood. There's these weird fossils in all these weird places. No, couldn't be. Why not? Because there couldn't be. Why not? Because there couldn't be. Why not? Because there couldn't be. <laughs> that's, tech, that's theoretically, that's the debate. So anyway, back in here, jumping back in at uh, verse 23, but they were insistent. See, so had a little free study there, but they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. 
Often I've heard it said, and I've probably said myself, that the same crowds which earlier shouted Hosanna now called for Jesus to be crucified. Not altogether true. This crowd is a different crowd. It is essentially the Jewish religious authority and those who followed them. I think we need to be careful accusing people in vast numbers. Jesus had followers. He had many who loved him. Uh, and, and it wasn't, and I know crowds can be fickle. They can change in a moment. But let's just be careful about accusing people. Verse 24, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. He released to them the one they requested for who rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. So was it Rome who killed Jesus? Well, it's the wrong focus again. We have a terrible tendency to look at things that are not really the, the point. And so we want to stare into this scene again. And when we do, you see Jesus emerge as your substitute. Barabbas means son of the father. That's what the word means. Bar, son, Abbas, father. And so Barabbas was son of the father. It's almost like not having a name. Who's that guy over there? The son of the father. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. You're all the son of your father. And so it's like not having a name. And that's why I see him as a representative of all men and women, of all humans. The text says he was a rebellious murderer. Well, he represents the Jewish authorities because at that moment they were rebelling against God and seeking to murder the son of God. And so he represents them. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had once told unbelieving Jews that they were all of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And so the, the ruling Jews, all unbelieving Jews, and by extension, all the human race taken captive by the devil, born in sin, dead in trespasses and sin, all of us are murderers rebelling against God. And so Barabbas represents us all. Instead, in our place, as our substitute, comes Jesus. And so, whoever you are, Bar Pensiero is released because Jesus takes my place. I'm a lying, cheating, murderer, rebelling against God, deserving of eternal judgment. And Jesus says, I'll stand in your place. You'll be set free. And it doesn't matter who you are, this is the transaction. Only a man could represent mankind. Jesus was man to be your substitute, to die instead of you for your sins in your place. Jesus was God your sacrifice. He was man your substitute. Unless he was both, you have neither. The only way, if you understand the nature of the universe, as it is revealed in the book of Genesis and the nature of man and what happened in the garden, the only possible solution for the problem, the universal problem of sin, is that God would become man to die for the sins of the world. That he would be sacrifice and substitute. And so this is why it's so critical that we never take anything away from the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man at the same time. And he will remain that for all eternity in that unique relationship that's hard to describe but perfectly easy to understand if you understand the problem of sin. 
And so Rembrandt was right, essentially. Everyone needs to put themselves at the cross because each of us is indeed a participant in the work that took place there. If you're a Christian, because Jesus was your sacrifice and your substitute, he then becomes your shepherd. Isaiah chapter 53 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity or the sin of all of us to fall on him. And then expanding on that idea, Peter said in his epistle, You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd of your souls. And so we were sinners. Jesus came as substitute and sacrifice. And as a result of his work, as a result of dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he now is able to be our shepherd. And we need a shepherd. We need to be led. We need to be led by God. And so that's what we can enjoy as Christians. So here's an encouragement for us this morning as believers. Whatever we do, whatever we experience, whether it's satisfaction or suffering or somewhere in between, we should look hard into it until we see Jesus come into focus and all of the rest of it fades away. It really is. I don't want to be trite, but it really is like those 3D images. Except a lot of times, I think, Christians, we just look at the surface. It's like walking by the hallway. There's one of those pictures that's hanging there, and you kind of look at it, and it's a landscape or whatever it is. It actually looks kind of weird. You don't quite understand it because it's not even a decent-looking picture. And we think that's our life sometimes. We're we're going through some satisfying time or some suffering time or or just something in our life, and and we don't understand it because we think it's all about us. It's all about the background. It, It doesn't really quite focus or make any sense to us, and we just kind of stumble by it. But if we'll think for a minute, wait a minute, how is Jesus magnified in this? How is Jesus glorified in this? Where is Jesus in all of this? And we'll let that all fade into the background. Eventually, Jesus will present himself. I'm not being mystical, but we will have a sense of his sovereignty, of his leading, of his guiding, of his shepherding, of his grace, of his mercy, of his love. And the truth is, all of us, myself included, I might be the worst one, we're all just selfish. And we look at everything other than the Lord. And we think we're looking at the Lord. By calling out to him to get us out of that situation. When all the while he says, I'm there if you'll look for me. What you prayed about a month ago is being fulfilled in this situation. You just don't realize it yet. Remember when you wanted more of my presence, more of my power, more patience, more love, more grace? Here it is. It's in this suffering. It's in this tragedy. It's in this time in your life. If you'll wait on me and look for me. Let's say you're not a believer here this morning. Sin requires sacrifice. It's just as simple as that. If you think that your own good works can cover your sin, you don't understand the scope of sin. You are hopelessly lost unless Jesus is your sacrifice and your substitute. You are Barabbas. The exciting thing is you can become Rembrandt. You can put yourself at the cross. Look at Jesus and know that he died there as substitute, as sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're, uh, they're wonderful, Lord. They're beautiful to behold. And I pray that in some small or great way in each life represented here, we have moved closer to 
an understanding of the grace and mercy that's available to us at the throne of God where Jesus, you sit at the right hand of all power and glory. For those of us who call you Lord, I pray that our lives would fade into the background and that you would come into focus, whatever that means to each of us, Lord, and however you want to do that, so that we would walk in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Lord, if there's anybody here that's not a believer, they've never really trusted Jesus Christ to save them from their sin, they're struggling, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to them the way that you have to billions of people throughout human history, starting with Adam and Eve and coming forward to now, that they would see your love and compassion, your mercy, the forgiveness that you are offering because of your death on the cross, that they would know that they are sinners in need of salvation. And that as we close, Lord, they would come forward and that they would pray to receive Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.